Good morning, good afternoon, good evening and welcome to another episode of Tales in Our Times. My name is Janet. My name is George. A good day to you across the time spectrum. Ooh, speaking of time, isn't that new Doctor Who out now? Oh, is it? <laughs> I think so. That... I want to watch that for Christmas. That's, That's... a holiday. That's random, George. No, you don't think so? I it's mean, not random. Yeah. We were talking about... I was talking about the time, time. Line, mate. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean... Wibbly wobbly. And there usually is a good Christmas episode of Doctor Who, it has to be said. So even if you don't watch Doctor Who, the Christmas episode is usually worth it. It's up there with all the greats. It's like you watch the... Wizard of Oz. the Foils War <laughs> Christmas special. You watch the... the Black Adder. The Midwife... Blackadder, Christmas and Carol. then you also watch the Doctor Who yeah. Christmas episode. I mean, that wasn't the thing when we were kids and we watched um, Doctor Who, you know, in its original form with moving scenery and everything. But um, Oh, yeah, back on the uh, uh, stone tablets. Oh, yeah, exactly, that moved. Wow. Well, anyway, <laughs> but, um, but since the sort of reinvention of Doctor Who with Christopher mm. Eccleston as the Doctor... Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not even sure if he did a Christmas special. I think David Tennant maybe was the first one to do that. But yes, they have become a, a staple around the holidays. Saying, you know, obviously this episode is probably going to come out in 2024, where we are right now. But while we're recording, we are on the precipice of the festive season. Season. Not season. Se- season. The, the festivus. Wait. No, that doesn't sound good. Anyway, um, shall we... You already know what we're talking about. We're not doing that bit anymore. Because you you can... You've read the episode description, presumably. We'll get to that later. Um, First, uh, Mum, do you want to talk about the bit of news? Uh, No, I thought you were going to do the news. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's right. That's right. I'm sorry. Just a little. Um, Yeah, we're just... We're only... um, doing uh, an in-memorial mention in the first week of December, uh, Palestinian poet Rafat Alarir um, was killed by an airstrike. Uh, the last poem he published, If I Must Die, has been making the rounds. Um, highly recommend it. Uh, he was an incredible writer, and we are at a loss uh, go forward without him. And it's sad when when writers or people that we've admired pass away, it's even sadder to think of the circumstances of this particular loss. Yeah, horrible things. Um, uh, pray for peace, as always. At least, if you listen to this, you probably pray for peace, because we're Peaceful. not really... Yeah. And sometimes peace you... heads. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't very in. Oh, I see, like piss heads. I thought you were making like a war heads joke. No, 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 like, no, no. I don't even. That's what we would. Yeah, I've been a bit of a peace head before. Yeah, Me too. that's happened. Me too. And for those of you who are a bit confused, that's just an English slang term for somebody who gets drunk a lot. So. Hey. Uh, but so uh, that's the only news. We just wanted to. Um, Honor his memory by saying his name, uh, Rafat Alarir. Rest in peace, rest in power. You will be missed. 
Onward to a little bit of a reading check-in. Uh, Mum, do you want to take the first one? Sure. So if you um, listened to our last episode, you remember I said that I kind of rediscovered Shakespeare. And so uh, one I read just recently was um, King Lear, which was one of those stories. Or Well, it was a, a play, obviously, but um, I read it as a story. Uh, it's still a story. It's still a story, yeah, of course. Um, and I knew the name. I didn't really know anything about the story, I'll be honest. My um, Shakespeare was only what I had to read in school, which wasn't King Lear. Anyway, so... Or watch your son perform, also in school. Yeah. Yeah, that too. I did see you in Macbeth. Interesting. But, so, the story of King Lear, and I'm just going to do a really, really brief story of... Uh, brief summary of the story those of you who already know it please don't judge me on the details i do or do not include yeah uh, it's ages long isn't it so. it's very long so um king lear uh starts with the king of britain who is king lear uh introducing his illegitimate son edmund and as he gets older, or as he's old, he decides to divide the kingdom between his three daughters. Those are Goneril, um, Regan, and Cordelia. And before he divides it up, he says to his daughters, you know, how much love do you have for me? He basically wants to see who can kiss up the best, you know? So, um, you know, his first daughter, Goneril, um, which, no, I'm not going to say that, but... Um, she everyone knows we yeah. all agree carry yeah. on okay so she um you know lays it on really thick and she's like yes i love you so much father and you are just you know the most wonderful and and obviously shakespeare said said it in a much more creative and flowery way than i am able to recall from reading it but um so you are surely the best dressed king in like all the land and on and on and on. And then he turns to Reagan and she, um, I'm not sure, Regan or Reagan, Regan, I think it is actually. So, but, but anyway, I also think that's quite a cool name. Um, and then she does the same thing and, and they're like, oh yes, you are the most superb father. And then he turns to his youngest daughter, Cordelia, and she says, you know, you're all right. You're all right. I do love you because you're my father, but that she she doesn't sort of like expand on that. And so he disowns and banishes her from his kingdom and splits the um, kingdom between his other two daughters. And normal, healthy parenting maneuvers. He also banishes um, the Earl of Kent at the same time because she took he took uh, Cordelia's side. Then Cordelia is meant to be marrying the Duke of Burgundy, but now that she's penniless, basically, um, he says, "Oh, you know what? It's not going to work for me. There's no, uh, there's no bonus with this one." So he drops her. But the King of France values her honesty, and so he marries her. And like I say, the kingdom is shared between Goneril and Regan, um, and. King Lear decides that he will live with each of them alternately. So he'll split his time between his two daughters. And one of his requirements is that they hold like a hundred of his guards sort of like to, I don't know, guess maintain his security. Who knows? But anyway, so time goes on 
And um, as he visits the two daughters that are now running the kingdom, they get sort of like a bit ticked off with their having to pay for these guards and they're having to take care of him all the time, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so the Shocking. Yeah, and so basically they turn him out and they um, they sort of say, do you know what? Nah, we can't, we can't do it anymore. And so King Lear is sort of left to his own devices and then he starts to regret rejecting Cordelia. What a surprise. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and so he's sort of wandering aloof around the nation and he, uh, he decides that he's going to seek out Cordelia. And in the end, she uh, is reunited with her father. But this is all during a time when France is um, waging war on Great Britain. So King Lear is wandering around amongst all this, looking for his youngest daughter. Um, he finds shelter and um, is eventually led to Cordelia's camp in the war. And they are reunited. Um, and that is, I think... Could be worse. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, so he is back with Cordelia. And the unfortunately, the French forces are overcome by the British army. And Lear and King Lear and Cordelia are captured. But at this point, Cornelia, uh, Goneril and Regan are fighting amongst themselves. And Goneril poisons Regan uh, for jealousy over um, the love of this man. And then oh, no. she sees no... I thought it was at least going to be something worthwhile. Yes. And he... There, there's a duel between Edmund, who's the... I think he was the Duke of somewhere else. Like I said, just excuse my lack of detail because I am doing this recall in from earlier this week. Duke of Marmite. Yeah, Duke of Marmite, whatever. And so there is a duel between the the guy that could uh, Goneril and Regan were fighting over and I think maybe Goneril's... Okay, I'm not going to say. Another guy. And because... Couple guys. But the guy that they're fighting over is mortally wounded and so Goneril's like, well, I don't know what to do now. And so she kills herself because it's Shakespeare, right? Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, because uh, Cordelia and King Lear have been captured, Cordelia has been um, sentenced to death by hanging. Mm. And unfortunately, even though there is some reprieve, she is not safe from the hangman. King Lear's heart breaks. And then he dies. <laughs> oh, okay. And you can tell it. It really feels like a Shakespeare. It very much said the the bare bonesest of plot points, and that took about three minutes. Thank you very much. And, and then and then they all die. And then <laughs> and they, they all, all die. Down. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, the thing that struck me about it one is that. Um, so it's based around this one family, the family of King Lear, and in the end they all die. You know, everybody else is left to pick up the pieces. But also that, regardless of what we think of Shakespeare, I do think that in a lot of his plays, he set up like a, almost a foundation. And of course, you know, we're not going back to those people that I don't want to talk about anymore. 
because they have got their own tragedies sure. and such going on. Sure, sure, but sure, sure. That um, you know, the the sort of fracture of family relationships and often over wealth and possessions is something that has been kind of constantly replayed in literature throughout time. And and so I think you can't not tip your hat to Shakespeare for kind of for setting a, a foundation in these family stories. You know, with a bit of mm. war and fighting thrown in. So fair play to him. I mean Yeah, high high stakes, isn't it? It is, yeah. And we, we were talking about, you know, possible things that might have been sort of not very loosely based upon these, and then I couldn't think of any. So I would say any family drama where you've got siblings and parents at odds with each other could possibly mm. find their roots back to Kin Lear. So so that's what I read and I've got a stack of books that I'm going on to, but um, that was what I consumed in this past week. What about you, George? Oh, did you want to say anything Delicious. about King Lear? Or <laughs> No, I think we've said enough. <laughs> okay. Uh, for me, I'm reading something completely different from that, not from what I usually read. This is about as George of a book as someone could possibly have put together. Has it got same-sex um, relationships in it? Uh, it does actually. I do <laughs> think that uh, the main character is gay. Yeah, I, I. It is weird. What was I just? I read another really good story about uh, lesbians recently. <laughs> Our wives under the sea. Remember, uh. I talked about that in another episode. I didn't tell you this. I finished that book and I wept. Oh wow! I, I had to sit down and cry wow. for a good minute, maybe. You know, you are a bit of a weeper, George, but that's okay. I am a big, yeah, yeah, I'm a big baby. Um, but this is, uh, this is, I think, a little less centered on the relationship, so maybe less cry, less crying. Less Shakespeare. Um, uh, I don't know about that one. Okay. We'll see. Uh, this book is A Master of Gin by P. Jelly Clark. Uh, I have read uh, Ring Shout by this author before, a really excellent story, kind of a shorter one about this group of black women who are hunting down the demons that the KKK are summoning oh. in the South. So like there will Gosh. there will be KKK rallies and they'll be like on a rooftop across the street and they're like Human dude, human dude, human dude. Oh, that one walks like a dog. Kill him. And then they'll shoot him and disappear into the night. Anyway, P. Jelly Clark, I've, I've been a fan of his since uh, reading that one, reading uh, Ring Shout. So I picked up A Master of Jinn. It is an alternative history um, in which Egypt becomes sort of like uh, one of the great cities um, in the early 1900s. And part of that is is built around like magic, like the the uh, application of the the sorcery by this you know wizard who unlocked all the secrets, Al Al Jahiz. But it's it is very exciting so far. It's very funny. It's got a lot of really cool magic in it. Uh, the first line, just for a quick one, Archibald James Portendorf disliked stairs. I quite like that, actually. I do. do you, it's fun. Have you ever come across people who don't like stairs? I've known people who can't take stairs like one foot, one foot, one foot. They have to go one, two, 
one, two. Oh yeah, I mean, I've, I've de- I definitely know like older people like that. But do you mean like, as in that, that people who are like, oh gosh, I you know if I can, uh, yeah, hmm. sort of like Buddy the Elf with the escalator. Maybe so. Like, yes, and the splits uh, a little bit. An of... unknown technology. Anyway. Festive. Well, I understand not liking stairs on account of my legs hurt. Um, You used to love stairs when you were little. That's... Because we didn't have any. Possibly the... (laughs) It's like... If there was any any need for proof that I was neurodivergent as a child, just to be like, my stairs are my favorite thing, for sure. (laughs) Uh, Someone should have seen it coming miles off. Anyway, uh, a master of gin, that's D-J-I-N-N, as in the genie, not, uh, like, gin. Like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. As in D-G- D-J-I-N, is it? Yep, that's what I just said. Oh, did you already say that? I. It's literally the sentence I said before you <laughs> said that. <laughs> Sorry! You're all right. Let's move on to the episode topic before I get cross. Oh, okay. Um, I was just going to say, um, and I don't... Good books mentioned. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, well, I think because in, in the interest of festivity, festive times, um, if you haven't read A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, um, I know most people have seen some kind of incarnation of it in movie form or TV. You know, oh, people, yeah. People have bastardized that story up the wazoo. Because it's a great story, um, and the story behind the story is is quite interesting. Because Charles Dickens wasn't terribly uh, successful prior to that book, and even when he wrote it, I think that people said, "That's not going to work. That's not going to work." So you know, but if you haven't read it, I I would definitely recommend it because the story, like when you watch movies or TV shows, they give you everything. We've talked about this before, but the book A Christmas Carol is very atmospheric. I found. You, the hmm. word, the words, just reading the story, you kind of get the ghostly feeling, and it was written as a ghost story. It wasn't meant to be, yeah, like creepy, a feel good sort of. Hey, everybody, love yeah. your friends at Christmas. It was meant to be a ghost story. Oh, it's a haunting, yeah. So, um, just I would recommend that. Just if you haven't read it before, give it a go. That's a grand idea. Okay, George, what are we talking All about? Right. We're talking about. I'm so tempted to just go off on a capitalism rant because of A Christmas Carol, but why well, shan't? Um, because we have to close up a uh, parentheses that we opened up in our last episode. Oh, yes. The and... Rare Book Fair. I can't even get through a sentence without you raising your hand. What? I just want to do a quick shout out because I spoke to my friend Melissa in Florida yesterday and she said, oh, yes, I told her we'd been to the Rare Book Fair. And she said, oh, yeah, I heard that on your last episode. So, yay, thanks, Melissa. (laughs) Hanging in there. (laughs) Yeah, thank you, Melissa, for listening. That's really (laughs) awesome. Anyway, yes. So from the wonderful folks over at Fine Book Fairs, uh, we went to the Philadelphia Rare Book Fair in the uh, beginning of December, um, which for us right now is a couple of weeks ago. For you, when you're hearing this, probably years ago. Um, <laughs> but we had a grand time, and we just want to talk about it. We want to talk about the things that we saw, the things that people were talking about. But before we get to any of the presentations we got to see, let's just talk about the experience of being on the floor. Mum, what was it like being around all those 
incredibly valuable pieces of literature. Prestigious publications, which I've only done once or twice. Most um, second-hand bookstores I go into, I go into because they sell second-hand books that are completely affordable. But um, so... <laughs> Number oh, one, you don't think the the rare books were very affordable? I don't think that's the point of them, is it? But anyway, um, what was the name of the <laughs> building it was in, George? Do you remember? I I know it was downtown, um, in Philadelphia. Uh, yeah, the Trinity Trinity Center for o- Urban Life, uh, on Spruce Street in Philadelphia. It's a beautiful church. Yeah, so that that was really nice. the The building was um very active i guess in my experience i don't know significant maybe is, is more appropriate word sort of lots of wooden heavy glass doors and that sort of feeling that you get when you walk into sort of like a, a traditional um religious building you know not really oppressive but you know it's hiding there in the background and then um, wow that's <laughs> a personal read i'm sure but the I, yeah the know, stained the glass on all sides and that wooden yeah. everything so then we so you go through like a little uh vestibule if you like i guess it's the double doors where the um booksellers were all set out and everything and there were lots of them i mean it was like not that big a space but they had really crammed it in and so and we all we just sort of split up and just went for a bit of a wander i it was it was fascinating to me because there was lots of things like first editions and um signed copies um I think pre-printing, yeah, like early um, proofs. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so some of the ones that stuck out in my mind were um, there was lots of children's books, which are always fascinating to me. There were a lot of like first edition Dr. Seuss stuff, uh, Morris Sendak. Um, oh, yeah, there was a lot of cool Morris Sendak stuff. And then there was like I saw a first edition of The Outsiders by S. E. Hinton. Oh, yeah. Um, and then I saw something that did catch my eye was a copy of Train Spotting by Ir- Irving Walsh. Yeah, Irving Walsh. Well, we'll put it in the episode description. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you want to fact check us. And it had a cover on it that was completely alien to me. Like, not only because mm. I have got a copy of the book and that isn't the cop- the cover that I've, I've got, but it was also... Right, really sort of um, abstract, I think, don't you think, George? Wasn't it like... Um... Oh, yeah. Sort of... Um, what's the word? I, abstract is kind of the appropriate term, but... Wasn't uh, it like masked faces or something? I, I, I... Yeah, it was, it, it was. It was like a jumble of kind of like facial features. And, and very... Um, I, every time I try to come up with the word, I keep thinking deconstructed. Like, um, but yeah. there's there is an art form like that that sort yeah. of sits in the abstract. Uh, very evocative. It was. It really was. Weird. I, I think, think <laughs> that double whammy of like not the regular cover and also a crazy one. <laughs> that one happened to me with a, a copy of Dune as well. I saw a beautiful, very old-looking uh, copy of uh, Frank Herbert's Dune, which I didn't open because of uh, Can't touch them. You can touch them. That is something we learned, is that you're supposed to touch them. Um, but I was a bit scared to touch them. Yeah, I still didn't. Um, but this cover of Dune was, like, deep green. 
like uh like this marble stone that was like forest green which is very interesting to me because it's a desert book <laughs> most of the cover designs are like orange or sand colored yeah so uh, it's something about that was like very like oh these are this is from a different dimension maybe or yeah. some, you know some other reality from the one that I understand. And I, I saw books like that had never, I saw um, not just books, but like pamphlet publications on like political movements. So that was quite interesting to me. I mean, I think there was one on like uh, the women's rights movement in this country back, you know, before yeah. women got the vote. And then there was, um, I, I did see a book by the actor and um, singer Paul Robeson who was actually somebody I really liked when I was younger. Don't ask me how I got into that. I really don't know. I think I saw him singing in an old black and white film or something. And he has this, you know, hugely baritone voice that was just so powerful. But anyway, and it was a, a book. It was sort of like a biography, but it was also um, him putting forward his opinions on, you know, being a, a black performer in what would have been, mm. I I don't even want to say a date, but I think sort of maybe 1930s, maybe earlier than that. It might even been earlier than that, so don't quote me. But, um, mm. yeah, so there was a lot of really interesting stuff to look at. But, and those are sort of my highlights, and I think you and I did both spend money there, didn't we? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit, because I'll tell you this. Surprisingly, people, somehow. We saw books that were like, Tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, just incredible prices. And I, not saying they weren't justified. And I wish that I had some titles. This is what I should have made notes on. Titles that were going for that kind of money. But um, I think it was just... A, I saw one. What you got, George? The first edition signed copy of Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye sold for $10,000 on the money. <gasps> I mean, man. I mean, not that it isn't valid as for that author, but I don't know if they set out in their career for it to be, you know. Or if they get any of that Well, no, money. of course not. Of course they're not. I mean, that's the other thing. This is secondhand stuff, so the original authors aren't going to get this money. But a lot of them probably... Well, no, um, a lot of the ones that I looked at were quite modern authors, so... But yeah, so that's kind of what I took away from that. And it was interesting. You know, I saw a lot of stuff yeah, that I hadn't seen before. But it was a little scary. It was a little scary and intimidating. And I didn't feel that comfortable. I did look at a few books, but I didn't feel really comfortable touching them. Because I was like, if I even like sweat on this book, it's going to drop in value by five grand or something. So, And I'll be liable for that. Yeah, and we, we did meet some nice booksellers. Um Remember that lady we talked to from, was she from upstate New York, I think? I don't remember her. No, I don't believe Oh, Where so. was she from then? Um, uh, she was from Walnut Street Paper, which is in, oh, it's in PA because oh, it's where Keith It's where Keith is Karen from. is from. Oh, yeah, that was it. That, cause that, remember? We saw books of his as well. Yeah, there was a really cool one, like, signed by his sister. Um, oh, Kutztown, Pennsylvania. 
that's that's where that's where Walnut Street Paper is. Um, I can't remember whether or not uh, that bookseller was from there or not. But yes, yeah, she was lovely. She helped us uh, check out some of the things that were a little more, you know, our price range. Uh, and also uh, put up with mum proselytizing to her to come on this show. So if you, if you came on here and started listening to our episodes and you hear this, hey, no pressure. Don't, you know, we, we'd love to have you on. But obviously we're just two strangers who, uh, uh, by our own admission, were wandering around a little uncomfortable at the Rare Book yes, Fair. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Um, but it was fun. It was a good time. And it's cool to see, you know, like, I I did get inspired. Like, I saw that copy of The Bluest Eye and, you know, like, there is afterwards I do feel complicated where I'm like, ah, you know, that should go to her family or like her estate, whatever. Like, she has uh, taken care of uh, the people after her passing. Um, but also just to be there and to like sort of... I don't know. I'm such a hippie dippy. You know, I I can feel energy. I think you feel it. Feel field. It felt very uh, ominous in a in a not negative way. Yeah. You know, just like I mean, resonant. I, also, I did take away from it that most of the booksellers we came across were doing it as a sideline. It was like their second job, or they were doing it mostly mm. online, and um. And I don't know how I feel about that either, because if you're going to sell stuff for like thousands of dollars, I don't, I don't know. That obviously, like there is an element of well, we don't the capitalist machine, and we don't, know, we don't know their lives, you know. Yeah. So, so I think it's good enough to say we met some great people, we saw some really cool books, and then we went into um, listen to some people talking, right? Yeah, so we got to see two presentations, the first of which was about careers in rare books, um, rare book selling, I believe, specifically, uh, moderated by Michael Winchip, um, who's an ex-professor at University Texas, I believe. And he also wrote or edited some huge, like, Essential American yeah, yeah. compilation. So he moderated for three speakers, um, Ali Alvis. Uh, they are a director in charge of this Delaware Special Collections Library. You can find them at Book Historia on the internet. Um, Kelsey, I don't, I didn't get the other two's last names. Oh, um, I'm very sorry to them. I'll add um, because we've got so much like info in this one we will add you know proper bibliographies to the books mentioned but uh our other two um speakers kelsey uh the director at the rosenbach actually um and darren was uh just sort of a a solo bookseller right He, he seemed very much to be doing his like he had a business wasn't he um didn't he work as an um, auctioneer, I thought? Um, he'd originally been a bookseller, and now he was actually uh, an auctioneer. He'd moved on from that. Wow. Yeah. It was a lot It was a lot of really interesting life experience. They were sharing some, you know, their stories of how they all got into uh, rare books. Oddly enough, um, <laughs> uh, 
Allie and Kelsey both trained as pilots for a short time, uh, separately of each other. Not, you know, they're not mates or anything. Um, but then at some point instead, uh, uh, moved away and ended up where they are now. I can, I just looked up those names just, you know, for clarification. Oh yeah. So let's hear them. So Ali Alvis is the one that you were talking about, who is from Delaware. Mm -hmm. And then Kelsey Scouten Bates is the one from the Rosenbach, which was just apparently around the corner from that church where we were. Um, I'm Mm -hmm. quite interested because I, it sounded like that was more of a, um, museum than like a library so I'm a bit interested to know more about that and then the um, the guy who is currently head of department for books and manuscripts he's a Freeman's representative so I don't even know what that is I'll be honest it's called Darren Winston and if you look up Darren Winston on the finefairs.com you can find all this information if you're... carry on George sorry yeah we'll link it up no it's okay yeah, so it was an interesting explanation. You know, I this is sort of something I remember from theater, the the aspect of everyone's story being so personal that it's not it doesn't really become advice. It's it's more just like their story and it was interesting, you know, um to hear it from all of them. Uh I at one point I believe Darren referred to the job as a combination of Sherlock Holmes, Santa Claus, and Sigmund Freud, which seemed very fitting, you know, the way they were talking about having to deal with clients and, like, meeting very odd, uh, uncommon experts. You know, the the sort of... Uh, I don't want to be too uh, doom and gloom about it, but, like, sort of the predictable... Uh, recommendation that if you want to get into rare book selling, you know, you have to be very mindful about your life work balance. It's like, okay. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think everyone Everybody is having a problem should, right now. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, so I thought it was interesting. So Kelsey and Ali were both academic librarians. That was the route that they'd taken. They, you know, um, done mm-hmm. postgraduate degrees in, um, some kind of library science, I think. And um, yep. the guy, Darren, had just sort of started his life. I mean, the story about the first... So he... This is how I took it. He was like a mover selling and a baseball shake. cards off of a folding table. Yeah, yeah, in New York. And I think he said the first time he, he realised that this could lead him somewhere was when he recorded one of his sister's albums or something. Yeah, he he took a uh a, a cassette recording of A Night at the Opera by Queen off of uh his sister's vinyl and then sold it for $3 like $3. <laughs> That's where he quoted which... his career starting and then he moved finally, you know, selling everything and anything and eventually found his way into rare books and he referred back to the guy who was facilitating the discussion saying that he uh Michael Winchup he used his bibliography that is apparently some kind mm. of bible in the world of rare books boys and girls in case you're interested um and that sort of like served him throughout his career uh buying and selling rare books so that was quite a nice little yeah. connection but I I like the way you said George you know everybody's got a story and that was kind of i think um 
Kelsey and Ali particularly definitely were telling their own narratives, which is interesting because their lives were very are very interesting. Um, but it was only sort of further on, you, you know, they sort of fine tuned it into talking about rare books. So, but yeah. Yeah. And I think so. some of the main takeaways, uh, if you are, if you're listening to this and you have an interest in collecting and, you know, getting into rare books, uh, the best thing you can do is um, to just ask people questions, try and find a, a collector near you and uh, bug them, bother them, try and get them to tell you about how their job works, what they do, what they've done recently. You don't need the hazmat librarian to come in and touch the book first. Something that they said for uh, the, uh, the panel said for the most part was, yeah, you just do it. Just grab it. Just, you know, and I think that um, that thing about, you know, finding somebody who knows stuff and asking them questions is a really good piece of advice across the board. I mean, I, you know, like teachers are often quoted as saying, oh, there's no such thing as a daft question. Well, in the classroom situation, sometimes there is. But I do think <laughs> that in life generally, you ask people questions, especially if you're asking them about a subject that they know a lot about and that they are passionate about, you can't go wrong you know, whether it be about rare books or any other subject you're interested in. Yeah. Uh, so a few little um, resources just to take a look at. You can check out the Colorado Antiquated Booksellers, uh, CABS, C-A-B-S, or indeed YABS, the York Antiquated Booksellers. Uh, <laughs> those are two resources that we were pointing towards at the end of the presentation. Uh, as well as the University of Virginia um, has a rare book school, I believe. And then they were also talking about the potential um, of education from Charlottesville or just looking up rare book school on YouTube. Um, Which is much cheaper. Obvs. So, obvs. Uh, so that was awesome. Oh, also read booksellers catalogs. Um, yeah, and I idea. did pick up a couple of those from the book fair <laughs> before we left. Not that we're thinking about getting into book no, selling. Cause we, no, we've got other things going on right now. <laughs> Pain in the ass, isn't it? Yeah, it sounds like um, hard work. But yeah, so <laughs> no chance of that here. Um, so that was our first presentation. It was a lot of fun. It was very interesting. Yeah. Um, it it was packed. That room, oh, that was room. stuffed to bursting. So many people want a career in rare books. Yeah. And then... And then... <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. So this, so for the second presentation, which was on banned books uh, from Kermit Roosevelt, who you will have to... First of all, what a cracker of a name. Just incredible name, sir. Um, but also, you'll have to look up his uh, biography yourself, just because there's too much to cite. Um, he, I know he currently teaches uh, congressional law, constitutional law, actually. And writing, um, I at, at University Penn. Yeah, he does also teach creative writing. Um, so he presented, um, well, oh, we'll have to, I'll look up the name of that moderator as well. Um, or you'll do it while I'm talking right now. Sure, sure. Um, but it was odd. A lot of people filed out. I was a little, I was pretty yeah. disappointed because. That was I crazy. Thought, 
surely if you are interested in becoming a rare bookseller, then, you know, banned books are going to be part of your life one way or another. But anyway, so it was, um, it was focused around Mr. Roosevelt's book, The Nation That Never Was. I want to read that. Yeah, I also want to read that. Highly uh, recommend just based on what we got from him. You know, he seems he seems so, yeah, so incredibly smart, but even like if I that's the thing with experts, right? You can't you can't say where they sit because you have no idea, right? Yeah. But I what I really appreciated about him was that he like explained all of his arguments, he explained all of his thought processes. He he was quite like he broke it down for you in a really uh, effective way. And I love that. So I'm gonna, I'm going to read that book. He defined book bans as attempts to exclude ideas from the public eye and as challenges to the established orthodoxy. I mean yeah. <laughs> well, sorry. So the book bans aren't the challenges, but they are in response yeah. to the orthodoxy feeling challenge. And wasn't that something he said? It was more, it, it's almost like a symptom. Yeah. It's if the orthodoxy feels threatened, they will try and ban books because it is banning books is sort of the short stop to author. Uh, Come on. Authoritarian. Authorita authoritarianism authoritarianism is that it i don't, I don't know, know if why that's my what brain you... didn't believe it. authority we can just say authority uh, no that's different oh <laughs> um <laughs> it basically cha okay. challenges the people in in power and that's why they want to control it and it's something that is relatively straightforward to do i think right and it's the one step short of actual authoritarianism tactics like if they wanted to really ban a book they would stop it from being printed or they would make it illegal to sell it or um and that has stock it but they can't they can't do that but it has, has happened in happened. the past but he said that it doesn't happen really in this country anymore that that has happened in the past where they've actually refused to publish set texts but that that rarely happens now and Ulysses and Lady Chatterley's Lover. Were Lady words. Chatterley's Lover. I don't know if anybody's read that, but it's saucy, but it's definitely not explicit. So I don't know what their problem was with that. I've read it. Too saucy. <laughs> Banned. Uh, but yeah, so that's no longer allowed per the First uh, Amendment. But the where the battle takes place, as we well knew beforehand, is like in the grounds of public schools. The local and state government both have, uh, yeah, local government, state government, and the federal government all have, like, different ways they can sort of exert control um, about, like, making them, taking them out of circulation in libraries or uh, taking them off the shelves in schools but allowing them to be sold in bookstores. It's crazy it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, th I I think he did. He sort of focused his um, the way he presented it on the relationship with book bans and the First Amendment, that freedom of speech piece. And I don't know. I mean, because I know you were taking like copious notes and I wasn't. But so something that I really took away from it was he said, you know, that 
the people who have these powers, then they should definitely be allowed to use them because there are there are situations when, you know, either for de developmental reasons or explicit reasons, you know, you don't want certain books exposed to certain age groups um, or populations like young people and stuff. But he did say that, and I, I don't want to get to the end before we've really talked about it, but I think all right. he did say that um, he felt, because I think somebody asked a question, you know, how can we sort of like stop this? He was like, you know, we need to look at the constitution again because it's out of date and look at um, changing the electoral college when you've got like giant states that have got like, because they are sparsely populated, they only get two electoral votes. And then you've got highly populated smaller states that have got five. And don't quote me on those numbers because I, I don't know if that's right, but you get the general idea. <laughs> you get the general idea and and sort of like get rid of uh, gerrymandering. So, um, yeah, yeah. He mentioned that we sort of, we it has been a long time since we, have aligned with the 1787 constitution. Um, you know, we are currently living during, like we're living post restoration values. The morals that we try to take forward, they are not focused on the original penning of this country's charter. But yeah, he spoke about uh, getting away from the electoral college, um, trying to adjust for Senate malapportionment, um, more adding term limits to the Supreme Court, expanding the Supreme Court, uh, uh, coming up with the popular vote compact, um, questioning things like why do we have a North and a South Dakota? <laughs> that um, was interesting. Reforming campaign finance, you know, just like all of these things that we study as sort of a counter to authoritarianism, like the way to actually put power into people's hands and, and make it so that if if the government is banning a book, it doesn't mean that you can never see it ever again, just that they are, you know, removing like it should be used to remove things like explicit from yeah. child's reach that are, you know. So I thought that was a very fascinating presentation. I really, really appreciated him for that one. Um, I mean, I just sort of like felt like I was sat kind of in awe because one, you know, he's, I am a bit intimid intimidated by really uh, highly educated people, which is, you know, Clever people, that's just yeah. a personal thing. But also, Scary. just listening to him, the information, a lot of it was outside of my knowledge. And so it was like learning things. But I was just like, every other minute, I was like, wow, bloody hell, didn't know that. Oh, my God. Oh, God. <laughs> well, so that was our experience uh, at the Philadelphia Rare Book Fair. It was phenomenal, uh, a little intimidating sort of across the board, but we definitely learned a lot and we saw a lot of new things. And as always, it did kind of come back to politics a little bit. Um, the When you study narrative, you cannot unsee it uh, on every part of your daily journey, including what's the narrative behind North and South Dakota? But so we had a wonderful time. We highly recommend if 
fine book fairs are coming to your town anytime soon or anywhere close that you go and check them out uh give them a give them a google uh give them your support and and try they're going to dc i think next year in may i think we yes. saw that one but but um yeah uh, yeah just try and keep an eye on some books events near you and tell us about them because we'll come yeah we, we haven't got anything going on <laughs> No, we're a bit sad and slow. But, um, well, I'm talking about myself again, obviously. But um, I do think that, um, for me, his talk, uh, Kermit Roosevelt, was the jewel in the crown for that day. I mean, it was all, you know, any added experience, I think, expands your brain and kind of lets you think about something maybe you hadn't considered before or think about things in a different way. But his... Um, his presentation was definitely um yeah highly educational so shouts out again to the presenters there and the moderators who helped us now i'll put it in the books mention are you sure because i do well now you're making me wait so i have to oh you're Shit. no 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 don't worry put it in the notes george it's fine it's fine we're gonna wrap it up there i think right george yeah, I think so. I think we uh, had a wonderful time and it was a lot of fun to experience something new. And at this point, we will hopefully you'll be hearing us in 2024. Mm -hmm. um, I will say, you know, I hope everybody had a safe and enjoyable holiday, whatever you celebrate. We know there are lots of holidays around this time of year. However you celebrate, be safe. And have fun. Be excellent to each other. And keep telling tales. Because we're always telling tales. Telling tall tales. Oh, well, short tales in my case, but whatever. Good day. Over and out. See you soon. Hear you soon. Go on. <laughs>